0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. This is the final episode of 2018. It's been an incredible year for Fresh Ed. We've aired 41 new episodes and had nearly 130,000 downloads over the past 12 months. We've also received financial support from the Open Society Foundations, which is allowing us to transcribe episodes and translate a few into Chinese and Arabic. I'd like to say thank you to Sherry, Hung, and Lu Sheik for their tireless efforts producing the show. Fresh Ed would not be possible without their support. I'd also like to thank our listeners for your continued support. It's been wonderful to hear from you over the year Please do consider rating us on iTunes or sending your comments directly to me through our website. Your feedback will only make our show better. In what is now becoming a tradition, today we review the field of comparative and international education for 2018. With me are Susan Robertson and Roger Dale. Co editors of the journal Globalization, Societies and Education. In our conversation, we touch on many topics, from the contradictions found within the Sustainable Development Goals to the lack of climate change research in the field and to the power of PISA.
1: No, I don't know. I, th- I, th- I think that, that globalization continues to be represented more and more through PISA. Uh, and the the various forms that PISA takes. So that's the other main thing. PISA is related to everything and is uh, not accidentally. I mean, is even more ambitiously going forward along across a number of fronts.
0: Susan and Roger also point to new directions in research for 2019.
2: There clearly is more than a rumble around the decolonising agenda, and there are papers coming through. There's clearly more than a rumble, and there are papers and special issues coming through around, you know, what's the university for? The rise of China and and the emergence of the One Belt One Road uh, initiative. How do we want to think about that? But to the, that's the other uh, topic. Um, some we know work that's going on, but we don't. We're not. It's not coming through the journals yet but it should.
1: Susan
0: Robertson is a professor of sociology of education at the University of Cambridge and Roger Dale is a professor of education at the University of Bristol.
2: Susan Robertson and Roger Dale, welcome back to Fresh Ed. It's absolutely great to be here again, Will, in 2018 and in December.
0: I agree with that. It's even very cold here. <laughs> it's, it's actually quite cold here in Tokyo, too. I mean, we've, we've now done this for three years, talking about the state of the field and, and looking at the field of comparative and international education and globalization and education, um, sort of taking stock on the year. So I guess to sort of kick it off, how would you begin to describe the current state of the field of comparative and international education?
1: Well, I, I had a look at the, the year's output of the main journals. And the thing that, that uh, struck me perhaps most was a piece in um, comparative education that Maria Manzon did in, uh, and continues this very impressive updating of the field that she's brought about. Um, and, and I thought that was very useful. And it, w- one of the useful things about that issue as well was the, the regionalisms bit. So we get uh, Felicitas Acosta talking about Latin America and the differences and so on. So I think that there is maybe a, a sort of, not splintering, but um, elaboration, or a greater elaboration of uh, regional differences and recognition of regional differences. But at the same time, Essentially, the content remains driven by the conditions of knowledge production, which essentially, in comparative education, which essentially are the production of PhD students who are typically doing their PhD on one country and uh, and uh, from one point of view, and very rarely self consciously comparative.
0: My my students, I'm, I'm sorry to jump in here, but. I you know, I'm I'm a product of that. I did a whole PhD on one particular country, and when I teach comparative education today, my students look over the journals, the main journals of the field, and that's the first thing they see is that wow, this is comparative education, but basically we're talking about single country studies. And I know that that might fall into methodological nationalism, as the both of you have pointed out before, but I think you're right. I mean, we're not necessarily pushing the ball forward. Um, in what it means to compare. Exactly, yes.
2: I mean, I've often reflected on that, Will, and I think part of the problem is that um, it declares itself a a field. And typically in the social science, um, comparison is a methodology, and there's been a great deal of reluctance to uh, be quite explicit about comparison as a methodology. Now, the minute you do that, then you're often typically looking for uh, comparisons because that's actually how you get the methodological uh, innovations, and how would you be in my case, for example, thinking about how do we go about comparing regions? And we did a book uh, that came out last year on global regionalisms, and that became a very interesting exercise because, you know, yeah. for instance, it should be the kind of thing that comparative education is doing, or indeed global studies, for example, because essentially you're looking at uh, how you go beyond the typical juxtaposition, but maybe moving your, your way toward, you know, the mechanisms, the structuring mechanisms that in context that generate outcomes, for example. And there you might see Different manifestations of something like a, a region. You're probably very likely to because of the kind of cultural, political economy of that particular space, but you can compare at that level. So I think. There's there's a there's a deep problem um, in the, the field of comparative education um, because of that. Uh, perhaps globalization offered a bit of a promise, but I think the, that if I look back over the year and I look at things coming through our journal, it, it seems to me that it's sort of dominated now by an industry of you know mobility and students moving, and we get little micro studies of you know Cambodian uh, Japanese teachers, training in Cambodia, this and so on. Um, So we, you know, Americans in Thailand, we've seen these quite specific kind of cuts into it and so on. But I don't think there's much reflection at the moment, uh, which is quite peculiar, about... Where the field of globalization studies sits at the moment, and particularly given the reversion back to, you know, hardening boundaries, nationalisms, uh, notions of nation and, and so on. So that's, that's, that's uh, quite an interesting uh, lack of development in our area.
1: No, I don't know. I, th- I, th- I think that, that globalization continues to be represented more and more through visa. Uh, and and the the various forms that Pisa takes. So that's the other main thing. Pisa is related to everything and is uh, not accidentally. I mean, is even more ambitiously going forward along across a number of fronts. And the the way that Pisa documents itself, I think, is something that we might take more seriously. I know some people have done it. I I think Bob Lingard and Sam Seller have done some of this. But record how Pisa operates, which is really very interesting. It has been from the start when there was all that publicity about it and that's what they wanted. Um so
2: can I can I come in there? I, I, I also sure. feel that on that front there's a kind of fixation with PISA and there's an awful lot more going on and I think this is something that the academic community needs to you know back off Um, I think there's a kind of um, an underdevelopment or analytically um, and I'm reflecting I gave the European Education Research Association a keynote address this year and challenged the, the field, the audience, actually, because um, people writing on, um, <coughs> let's say, Pisa Tellus, all that, you know, rankings, you know, you can take the whole lot. Um, what we really are looking for here is, I would say, a, a sociology of quantification. There's been a kind of lazy governing by numbers. Okay, Now, the French states governed by numbers since the beginning of the 1800s. So what is it that's different now? Um, and how can we analyze that? And there are some very nice uh, resources out there, epistemic resources, if we want to call it that, people like Marianne Foucault and others doing some wonderful work around thinking about um, the new forms of quantification and uh, how we might think about that, you know, ordinal systems and so on. So, moving ourselves just away from that kind of easy governing by numbers which you know is quite catchy and so on but actually it's if you get really close to it essentially it doesn't tell us that much about how these big um, you know large data-driven systems of um, measurement actually work and the 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 aspect of the way in which it's not me- just measurement; it's actually about <laughs> representing worlds in, in in vertical ways, in and in such a way to generate competition. And it's the competition part that's the crucial bit, not the governing. But it's not the performative bit of the number itself, but it's actually the way competition gets uh, set up.
0: You know, I, earlier this year, I was able, or I was asked to host a webinar called "The Datification of Comparative Education," and that it reminds me a lot of what you're talking about. Is is this sort of the field itself trying to come to terms with, well, what does it mean to live in a world of big data, of PISA sort of representing everything and having so much power, not only in the governance, but impacting competition and impacting performativity of students and teachers and researchers. So I I do think that is certainly a very interesting direction the field um, is going in and maybe will continue to go in in the future next year. What about I'd like to turn to um, the Global Education Monitoring report uh, that was put out just a few weeks ago. Uh, it connects to something you mentioned earlier about this focus on mobility and migration. that that was the topic of the GEM report. So I want to hear what what's your take on that report and what does it say? Uh, to the field of comparative education or maybe more importantly what could the field of comparative education say to that report?
2: So the report um, and it's in many ways is a welcome report in the sense that it's talking about uh, intra national mobility which of course is clearly something that uh, is it's a particularly um, not reducible to China, but we often see uh, the hukou system, for example, and do, you know, where the promise of education is tied to your registration uh, at birth and families that are mobile into the cities and so on actually <laughs> find that Typically, what they have to do is uh, access uh, private education, not um, state funded education and so on. Um, Looking at that report, I mean, it's quite interesting. I I look scan down and uh, countries that are regarded as actually uh, somewhat recalcitrant, and and indeed Australia, uh, my accent, you can hear that is an Australian. So I feel quite ashamed of that, you know, housing, um, migrants and refugees and asylum seekers offshore, um, and so on. And that continues. Perhaps what is isn't there? If the question is what's not there, and I and that's the challenge for the field, is there's not much by way of a structural analysis in there um, that causes these massive shifts, you know. So, and I I feel, and I'm going to tie this to the um, Pisa um, global competence framework, which has will be reporting um, fairly shortly because I understand it's got to report in December, um, and additional set of questions that um, engage with particular scenarios. And here again, in, in this, this same representation of the world, um, <laughs> students are invited to think of being, being globally competent um, by also thinking about, you know, people who are moving and so on. But movement in this moment, in the global competence framework, pretty much gets reduced to a kind of cosmopolitan kind of, you know, you should move across a boundary, should go out and see the world. Now, or there's an acknowledgement that there is reluctant, um, you know, asylum seekers and refugees and so on, but no scenario <laughs> is set up in such a way that you invite students to begin to interrogate why these mass movements are taking place. You know, to do with war, uh, violence and so on. And until we can get at some of those structural issues, um, and then from there look at the ways in which we might. Um, encourage let's say learners of relevant ages because some of the some of this might be not suitable for really young children but then it seems to me that we ne- never really get at trying to understand the social and political problems of the world and they are massive and huge and confronting at the moment.
1: Yeah, I think what we, we get is, um, and I think this is a very interesting piece of comparative work for somebody to do, It's to see we have these different reporting bodies. Um, we have the GMR. Uh, we have the World Development Report. We have the PISA type stuff. And they're all doing different things for different purposes with different histories. And it would be very interesting to try to fathom out their kind of understandings of the world. I mean, we know GMR is probably the easiest because it's the longest, but it's changed a lot in its track. World Development Report, to my amazement, uh, has a fantastic chapter on social contract, which I was very surprised at, really very, very interesting, which has I, I, prompted me to try and do something with it. That working on the idea of social contract in ways that we would uh, think about but they would think about as well uh, and more broadly and so there is human capital index now all these things and, and the remaining traces if there are any of the um, world bank's monitoring of um, all countries in the what, what's it called the knowledge assessment methodology which still lingers on and ranks every country in the world from one to hundred and seventy two or whatever it is now it would be really a really interesting thing to do. I mean, we me say this, but I might have a go at it, to compare not just the methodology, but the purpose and the theory and the outcomes and the uses of these things. I mean, one of the things we don't look at with these things is who are they talking to? Who are their audiences? Are their audiences governments? Are their audiences universities and who? So I think that's a very interesting range of things emerged from this.
0: You know, it it makes me think about the like the World Bank itself is not monolithic. There are so many different sectors and factions inside the World Bank. And even looking at say comparing the World Development Report, which you know it had that chapter on uh, the social contract. But I, I mean, I always that two thousand nineteen World Development Report on labor is so fascinating. I mean, it has a picture that is painted by basically a Marxist painter uh, with a big sort of industrial laborer on the cover of it. Uh, the the first lines of that report start with Karl Marx. I mean, it is it is incredible that to think that this is coming out of the World Bank and that later on they actually talk about, you know, some tax reform and trying to get more people to pay taxes, which is pretty wild considering that they have another report called the Doing Business Report, which has a whole indicator that says fewer taxes in a country gives you a higher score. So I mean, it's just wild to think like even inside the World Bank, that there are such different reports being generated at the same time.
2: I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think, um, you know, Brankovich's work, who was the uh, economist um, who actually put out a book at the same World Bank economist, I don't think he's there anymore, but he put out a book at the same time as Piketty and Strake and all of that lot in 2014. And he was always a person that drew your attention to the social and the political aspects of of the world, as it were, and not just simply a a very particular uh, economic take. Perhaps unfortunately the the world of education largely, it seems to me, has been dominated by a very specific kind of economics, um, because not all economists are the same, of course. Um, But I guess we could take us over and you know also reflect on the OECD. I mean it's a split, it's a split organization and it has from its beginning. Um, In the early 1960s, it was the um, Alexander King, for example, in the OECD who um, got going the limits to growth activity. um, And that potential kind of degrowth area um, um, gets canvassed within the OECD um, shows you the kind of split within the OECD. So on the one hand, you've got a much more kind of economic um, drive, economy, innovation, and so on. And on the other hand, within the OECD, and that still continues, there's a concern with, you know, do we... Do we have uh, the right approach to growth? Could we not be thinking about degrowth and so on. Now, that's a story within the OECD that we haven't really talked much about. We tend to talk about um, that bit of the OECD and the deep growth, the limits to growth, which was the Club of Rome activity um, that came out in the 1970s. That's a story that could get told a bit more because essentially, if we stay with what is the hegemonic moment as intellectuals, what we do is we firm up, we harden that account of the world and we become complicit in um, erasing alternate narratives that actually currently exist within the OECD. Um, just let me remind our listeners, in 2010, well before Piketty and others were putting their books out, the OECD uh, in their um, social kind of welfare area had flagged um, a major, major concern with uh, rising inequalities um, in places like the UK, United States and so on. Um, So those reports are very interesting to read. And actually, if we go to the first framework report for the global competences, you're slightly knocked off your feet, a bit like the World Bank report with how explicit it is about inequalities, uh, racism, um, jobs disappearing, people who've lost out and so on. Now, when we get to the 2018 report, that good chunk of that's missing. And funnily enough, the 2016 report, if you didn't get a copy of it in paper form, uh, that's also missing as well. So there's a, there's been a movement in the direction of being extremely conservative. Um, and, and that happens because of the way the PISA thing happens, You know, where you've got to get broad agreement right to the last person as to what quite will be the questions that get asked and essentially there's a kind of complete whittling down and an erasure and and it loses its politics. So both, I mean I think there's a lot of work and research to be done to kind of look inside these institutions and try and get hold of alternative stories. I was minded of a young woman that sat in my office and she's going off to, she went off to New York and she's been working, um, she's a Wants to come back and do a PhD, but she's uh, working in New York uh, amongst a set of journalists trying to get on-the-ground stories, okay, of innovation uh, around sustainability, collectives that get organised to, you know, engage in community work and that kind of thing. And I guess where I'm going with that is to, in, in her case, as a journalist, is to make more visible these alternative movements, a bit like Harvey challenges us to do, to do with rebel cities, you know, can we tell alternate and different stories that are out there so that we open up the possibilities to use uh, these alternate stories in, in imaginative ways? So
0: one of the things about 2008 that has really struck me were the number of extreme weather events around the world. I mean, it just seems like climate change has really reached this moment where it's nearly impossible to miss now. And even the UN report, talking about all these different reports, the IPCC or IPPC report um, is now sort of saying that 2040 is going to be uh, uh, the decade where we are really going to, to experience massive changes in the climate um, that will have real real consequences for humans. So I guess I, what I wonder is, has the field of comparative education said anything about climate change this year?
1: Uh, not as far as I'm aware, but I've, I can't remember quite how, but I found myself reading quite a lot of political ecology, which is absolutely tremendous. Very, very interesting to the point where I'm, I tend to sort of divide, divide the field of globalization up into the global, the international and the planetary because these are three different sets of things. Uh, and the planetary will, uh, in in the forms of a lot of very good work on political ecology, I think is a really good beginning place. And one of the interesting parts about it is that I think, and we haven't so far surprisingly mentioned the SDGs, because I think the SDGs are a very different proposition from the MDGs. They are in many ways. They offer very interesting opportunities for doing a different kind of investigation because we're not looking so much at countries as as at activities and so on. And they also are open to some kind of ecological recognition. And I think if, if I had any more students looking for a topic, I would say look at the SDGs and compare them with the MDGs. Uh, because the MDGs sort of come out as a big disappointment. SDGs come out much more in a sense self-consciously and and much more broadly. And I think they really do represent not just a replacement of the MDGs, but a really interesting opportunity for alternative ways of understanding them, because they operate in different ways.
0: It reminds me of with the SDGs, what is so fascinating to me is the number of contradictions that exist within them. And and I use contradictions in the sense of David Harvey's 17 Contradictions book, where it's not about having two things and only one can be right, but it's about having two forces that are so opposed to each other and yet somehow they coexist. And, and what I'm thinking of in particular here, and, and listeners will probably know this is a soapbox of mine, um, is the the contradiction between SDG 13, which is about reducing or or solving climate change, and then SDG 8, which is all about economic growth. And to me, having the economy continuing to grow, to connect to what Susan was saying earlier about degrowth, having constant economic growth is certainly going to impact climate change. And so to me, there's a major contradiction between SDG 13 and SDG 8, but somehow that Sort of works for this moment in time.
2: Yeah, because degrowth, I guess, is is extremely challenging um, for many countries because we've imagined the health of the economy always in terms of um, growth each year, as it were, and to it, to develop a different language. I mean, and, and and this is simply just a way we imagine <laughs> an economy is 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 actually at work. So could we begin to think about different ways of imagining economic um, and representing, because it's a question of representation, economic activity and um, different ways of actually uh, representing global economic activity? Uh, Just remind, I just want to remind the listeners, it was quite interesting, the, the To think about the global economy, um, that emerged as a way of representing the global economy in the 1930s during the Depression years. And we've kind of stuck with that, Um, this idea of um, a a barometer that's measuring the health of the economy. But it's a representation. It's not the so-called real economy, though we often... Think of it as real or, you know, we look at the stock market and that's again a representation. You know, could we have um, other forms of uh, representation that actually do take into account aspects of sustainability, climate change? I mean, that's clearly all part of our economy. So rather than being separate uh, things in the SDGs, those things should be uh, any economy that isn't sustainable, actually. They ought to be embedded in the way in which we measure the health of the economy, I must say I was I was quite pleased. The uh, there's a, an audit going across my university at the moment uh, in relation to courses being taught and are there is there any content around uh, sustainability and those kinds of questions and um, we have a lecture in my third year uh, sociology class on sustainability um, put, putting that on the agenda. Uh, you did ask, has comparative education done and I. I would want to say that actually, any of the uh, folks working on uh, small islands and so on were quite alert to this, you know, five, six, seven years ago. And particularly, you know, places like the uh, Maldives and so on, you know, whole islands just disappeared with one of the tsunamis and so on. So they have had their head on. Um, the small islands uh, scholars on issues of sustainability but you know so pick up a nice contradiction here will the global um, competence framework encourages mobility okay now likely we don't want mobility we want to push people to be more immobile in many ways and to think of ways in which the carbon footprint as my son often points out you know are there different ways in which we can be connected together using digital technologies, other than thinking that you um, hop on a plane and go somewhere else? Um, so that's that direct encouraging mobility in the global competence framework. At the same time, where we're pushing for sustainability and um, you know carbon reductions and and so on.
1: I, I think I mean just just to come back briefly to the SDGs, I think they do represent a very different order of challenge from the MDGs. For instance, SDG 4 is huge, but within SDG 4, I've done a lot on one element, SDG 4.7, global citizenship education, which is a massive thing and, and presents wonderful challenges and opportunities for really constructive and creative work.
0: Yeah, I mean, because SDG 4.7 particularly looks at outcomes of education, which is so unusual in these sort of global goals, which usually looks at the inputs to education. And so that it's a, such a big challenge, but it's such a big challenge that the, the people that actually have to measure it, unfortunately, have sort of reverted to looking at inputs.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the challenge is in the, the, the totally internally contradictory idea of global citizenship. What's contradictory about that? Uh, everything. <laughs> what is the entity of which we are a citizen? Oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a citizen of the globe. Oh, okay, yeah, we all are, darling, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, like what passport would you hold, in effect?
1: It is, I mean, I, and associated with it, and I think this is another very, very flabby but dangerous concept here, is cosmopolitanism. And I think we do really do have to keep an eye on the the growth of cosmopolitanism as the nice solution to everything.
2: Okay. But, I mean that is my criticism actually, both of the uh, current conceptions on the table of global citizenship and the global competence framework. Um, it's pretty much a kind of kind of weak liberal. I mean it, it had some potential, it had some possibilities. You know, if you looked at some of that documentation, um, essentially the way it's run is to th- still to think in, in terms of nation so that you you're to look out beyond your nation. Um, I've for various reasons found myself in Kazakhstan on several occasions in the last couple of months and my comment publicly in that space was to actually say that you had global citizenship within in, in other words, um, Kazakhstan that's got uh, multiple um, ethnic communities and working incredibly hard and has to work very hard to secure those different ethnic communities to a common notion of uh, nation and so on. And that would somehow need to be acknowledged. Okay, so you've got, and I'm taking from this idea of internationalization at home, you've got globalization at home. Within your national territorial boundaries, how do you become globally aware within those boundaries? Okay, could be beyond too, but actually we would a good first step would actually be within so a, a notion of global now on those metrics that's not going to count you're going to do pretty badly actually because that the focus is not on you know beyond the boundaries and and so on so I, I see that as a, a bit of a, a bit of a problem quite a kind of weak well it's a kind of liberal you know you'll just be a, a good and tolerant uh, citizen and sometimes we might want to unsettle the world with some quite confronting truths about you know who we are how we how we relate to each other our lack of empathy for each other you know i'll be all right but don't ask me to think about my neighbor that kind of thing
1: <laughs> yeah no i mean you talk about culturally related responses but they're actually culturally held norms and understandings they you know there isn't the basic again we can't judge every everybody against uh, french ideas of politeness or whatever
0: taking a relational idea of the global is the local i mean in a sense perhaps we should be saying we want local citizenship rather than global citizenship, maybe it means the same thing, or maybe it allows us to conceptualize it a, a little bit more, I don't know, more realistically?
1: No, so- I, I mean, I, I think the challenge there comes from the movement of people, Can because the movement of people makes it, disrupts and, and, and troubles the, the, the conception of national citizenship. It's what's looked through Eastern Europe, most of Europe now. His citizenship is a problem.
2: Can I give you a good example of what I'd see as local citizenship? The mobilisation of young people in the United States around um, the shootings in the <coughs> school, and that that became a national campaign. And there's an amazing image of the shoes of the young kids who marched in in Washington, but they marched all over the country and they took their shoes off and they left those shoes, pairs of shoes in front of the Capitol building. Now that's a, a local citizenship and a claim to certain rights in the United States that we can connect across boundaries as it were. I could imagine um, a classroom in France or England and a teacher might lead a discussion around those Shoes and the absent bodies. Okay, how, where does where does a gun lobby come from? You know how are guns organised in the UK? Um, what do we see as global statistics from nation to nation, community to community, that kind of thing? So, I mean, all struggles are always, always, anyway, local. It's what <clears> we do, and this would be uh, Borowoy's kind of notion of connections. How do we connect? Um, across different spaces to the conditions of possibility or probability, or and and the politics that then kind of follow, and perhaps that's a healthier way then of thinking um, of. The global of the connections between us and the possibilities and the politics in any one place of what actually happens in in that moment it's a it's an unsettling and confronting um, challenge to adults about the world that young American children live in.
1: but the dominant medium of this global thing is graduate status across the world that is the common denominator that actually the only thing that overcomes national boundaries
0: is graduate what do you mean graduate? People who graduate from yes.
1: universities? People with undergraduate degrees. Right.
0: I mean, it, yeah, it does assume, it assumes that even though there's so much mobility of people that are outside of that domain.
1: Whatever else strange habits or beliefs they have, that's the common denominator. It is the, the, the medium that enables people across all the world to talk to each other in some way or other. And we don't have another one. Hmm. So I know we're not in the
0: business of... Predicting the future, but I did want to ask you sitting here in December of 2018 and looking into 2019 Do you have any predictions for the field itself for for research that that may be coming out or topics that are of interest? Uh, may maybe of interest to researchers
2: the um, in Fact I've just been working on our journal and the papers kind of which will be coming out and so on and um, and some of the potential special issues and so on. Um, there clearly is more than a rumble around the decolonizing agenda and there are papers yeah. coming through. There's clearly... Uh, more than a rumble and there are papers and special issues coming through around, you know, what's the university for? Partly because there's a kind of somewhat of a collapse at one level um, of faith, you know, um, in the promise of education and this kind of, this plays directly into the, the idea of human capital, invest in yourself and you'll get an outcome. Well, actually... For increasing numbers, um, no. And one of the things that we could see about the Brexit vote is, for sure, there were disenfranchised groups, you know, working class um, clusterings along around the coastal areas and so on. But in the southeast of England, um, it was also an upper working class, lower middle class group of young voters who felt that their faith and their investment in education had not been repaid and they are heavily indebted. So there are papers coming through the journals and we want more of these. Thinking about the ways in which education has been heavily financialised, it's a services sector and we often don't go out there and think of the way in which education has been uh, grabbed for the purposes of the economy and for building up services sectors in the developed uh, countries particularly, but also China's kind of involved now with the One Belt, One Road initiative. But the, that's the other uh, topic we don't see much writing on, but it's crucially important, is the rise of China. We, there's writing on the rise of China, of course, but and its transnational project that's underway. But the One Belt, One Road uh, initiative, um, which uh, is... Clearly having consequences, um, across the, both the belt and road, as it were. So this, this stretches out right across to, toward Europe on the one hand, and then down, snakes down through parts of the, uh, East Asian world right down to Indonesia. But education is important in that because it, uh, be- Becomes part of the infrastructure that enables uh, movement and so on. Um, but there are kind of elements and we can see that across Europe. You know, Poland becoming very interested in turning toward China and looking at uh, the way in which even its education institutions are, you know, looking toward China. And that's no no surprise there. But we need to know more about these kinds of initiatives and what that means for uh, education. You know, what kind of foreign policy is this? You know, does aid happen for China in the same way an uh, in infrastructure development? And perhaps one last uh, reflection, Will, about areas. We talked a bit about PISA and big data, but um, there's a lot of work um, both going on and it's likely to be coming through the journals, but exciting work around the rise of platforms, infrastructures and so on. And how do we want to uh, think about uh, that? Of course, the big firms that are in there, you know, um, like uh, Facebook and Google and others and Google schools, Silicon schools, uh, lovely writers like Ben Williamson and, and others doing work in this area. But perhaps even some of my own students uh, looking at Google Classrooms, what does this mean for the oversight of the state, uh, questions of citizenship and issues of security, um, surveillance and so on. So a major, major agenda of work uh, to be done. And um, it'd be interesting to come back and uh, talk to you at the end of 2019 to see how far down the agenda we have got in that regard.
0: Well, you are always invited back. I mean, it is such a, it was an incredible year and it sounds like there's a lot of very interesting work coming out in 2019. So yes, please do come back. Susan Robertson and Roger Dale, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed and Happy New Year.
1: Thanks a lot, Will, and hope to see you soon. Thank you very much, Will.
0: Susan Robertson is a professor of sociology of education at the University of Cambridge. And Roger Dale is a professor of education at the University of Bristol. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of FreshEd by visiting freshedpodcastcom support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Priming. I'm Will Bren. Happy New Year, and I'll return next week to continue our mini-series on the Global Education Meeting.